Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Regenerative agriculture may be a relatively new or unknown concept to most U.S. consumers, but new research by ADM suggests that as shoppers' awareness of the practice grows, so too does their trust in retailers and brands that implement its tenants and their intent to buy products sourced from those that practice it. In response, according to ADM's recently published report, Farming for the Future, the State of the Regenerative Agriculture Program Adoption, nearly three-quarters of CPG executives and 47% of retailers say they have adopted some form of regenerative agriculture program. Of those that do not yet have a program in place, 65% say they plan to adopt a regenerative program within the next five years. But to do so successfully, many agree they need the right partners, including those with long-standing sustainability track records, strong farmer connections, and expansive supply chains. This can be a tall order for the relatively small but fast-growing approach to agriculture and business, but one that ADM is striving to fill by working with partners across the value chain to test and share best practices, offer financial support and technological innovation, and establish industry-leading standards that are both flexible but effective. In this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, ADM Director of Climate Smart Ag Origination, Paul Sheets, shares how ADM is approaching and advancing regenerative agriculture, how consumer perceptions are influencing the movement, and how CPG companies and retailers are responding. So according to ADM's proprietary consumer insights platform, Outside Voice, nearly three-quarters of U.S. consumers believe most of their food and beverages should be sustainably sourced, and more than 65% say that they're more likely to purchase products that are sustainably sourced. Likewise, even though many consumers may not know what regenerative agriculture entails now, when it was explained to them, ADM found that their perception, trust, and purchase intent all increased, suggesting that practice would reinforce business resilience. Specifically, ADM found that after defining regenerative agriculture, 73% of consumers agreed they would be more likely to trust retailers and brands that implement the practices, and 72% agreed that they would be more likely to purchase from them. As ADM's research revealed, many retail and CPG companies are responding by exploring and adopting some form of regenerative agriculture program. But as Sheets explained, Regenerative agriculture is still in its infancy, and building it up in a way that meets consumer demands, delivers real environmental impact, and offers commercial benefits across the supply chain requires partnerships, pilots, and patience. The consumer I showed, they want to know more. Now we have to give them more. Uh, And to give them more, we have to continue to scale up our efforts and research around regenerative agriculture that has credible environmental, positive environmental impacts that's associated with the regenerative agriculture programs. We're still in early days. Uh, Takes scale, takes will, takes want, 
but in early days, we've seen a lot of success throughout the supply chain. What we have noticed over the last 18 to 24 months is from those um, those different markets, we provide agriculture ingredients in the food market, fuel, feed, and industrial space markets. We've seen a significant uptake in the uh, the willingness to partner and fund these programs uh, that have positive environmental impacts uh, that are associated with a regenerative agriculture program. For its part, ADM began working with partners in 2012 and 2013 to better understand the potential of regenerative agriculture, identify best practices, and develop a working definition that could serve as the foundation for communication with consumers as well as stakeholders across the supply chain. Uh, as a company, there's things that we're experts at. We buy grain, we set markets, we set quality standards, delivery periods, but uh, understanding the practices that go into the commodities that we buy, we vaguely knew. You know, a lot of farming backgrounds from employees that buy the grain, a lot of people that farm, uh, that work for ADM as well. That being said, it's, it's not usually part of our like question tree or conversation tree that we have with our farmers. So in 2012, we started, we stood up a couple pilot projects just to understand which decisions are getting made out there and uh, what type of environmental impacts those decisions make and what, what are the variations of those decisions as well. Uh, our first couple of projects were in Des Moines, Iowa, and in the middle of Kansas around wheat uh, of really just understanding those practices. And at that time, we ran pilot projects from 2012 to roughly 2017. We got a pretty good feel um, of what was happening now in, in each one of our supply chains because that's where our pilot projects existed, was where we were buying and processing grain. Uh, and we had identified a couple of really cool trends from U.S. farmers uh, that had positive environmental impact. So the first thing that we wanted to do was not dictate practices at the field level. Let's try to understand what practices are getting adopted and then try to have private industry contribution accelerate the adoption of those practices. And what we found in those five years were trends that supported trends that you can find in a lot of um, uh, uh, public um, um, uh, uh, forums. Um, and when we looked at the practices that had the most positive environmental impacts, we're looking at tillage practices, fertilizer plans, cover crop adoption, and then overall productivity. And if you look at like tillage as an example, NAS reported in 1977, the U.S. farmer represented less than 2 million acres of no-till annually. That's less than 2 million acres of a total of 330 million acres of principal crops during that time. And then if you fast forward to 2017, NAS reported that there's 102 million acres in the U.S. that represent no-till, an increase of 100 million acres over you know, a 40-year time frame during that time. And uh, when it came to cover crops, prior to 2000, there was only 1 million acres of cover crops that NAS uh, reported. And uh, we've projected using, like, satellite imagery third parties that there's roughly 20 million acres of cover crops that are planted or were planted in 2020. So an increase of 20 million or 19 million acres during that time, with which with the majority of that adoption increase happening in the last 10 years. And then fertilizer efficiency in 1982 – um, the EPA reported that there were 24 million metric tons of commercial fertilizer that was used in the U.S. Um, and then reported in 2015 that there were only 22 million metric tons of commercial fertilizer that was used in the U.S., 2 million metric tons less. And then the big showstopper during that time is over 40 years, 
the U.S. farmer doubled the productivity of the land that they were farming on while actually decreasing principal crops from 330 million acres to 310 million acres. And everybody understands that with that increased yield, usually there's a suggestion of increased fertilizer use during that time. So to be able to reduce 2 million metric tons while doubling production of corn, soy, and wheat during that time has been spectacular. So we, A, wanted to identify those trends uh, to try to put programs together that um, incentivize farmers to continue to adopt or adopt at accelerated rate because every single one of those decisions of going from conventional till to no-till or planting a cover crop or, you know, uh, uh, having a fertilizer plan that leads from a, a, a two-point or a uh, from a 1.2 nitrogen use efficiency number to a 0.8 number uh, has either productivity or cost concerns around it. So there has to be some incentives that offset that. Um, um, but what we wanted to do was try to, um, uh, in a succinct way, um, edgy or communicate what our definition of regenerative ag falls under those buckets of the trends that were naturally already happening. Drawing on these figures and working with other stakeholders, ADM ultimately defined regenerative agriculture as practices based on indigenous ways of land management that are adaptive to local and physical conditions, as well as culture. We really have five main principles of regenerative agriculture. Minimizing soil disturbance, like we talked about from a conservation tillage standpoint. Maintaining living roots and soil, which can be cover crops, can be uh, double crops as well. Continuously covering bare soil, which has tillage components to it, has cover crop adoption component to it. Uh, category four is maximizing diversity with the emphasis on crops, soil microbes, and pollinators. So it can be edge of field practices. It can also be three crops over a five-year period. And then the fifth one is responsibly managing inputs, uh, including nutrients and pesticides. So it really focuses on fertilizer efficiency. And at least by having a definition of regenerative ag, when we have a conversation with farmers, they understand how they can fall under those five principal categories. Given the trial and error nature of testing and identifying best practices to meet each element of this definition for regenerative agriculture, as well as the increased costs associated with implementation, Sheets said that ADM quickly realized that just as it could not define regenerative agriculture alone, it also needed partners to scale it from a logistical, technical, and financial standpoint. Uh, so the one thing that we we learned early on is this isn't something that we can do on our own. Like each part of the supply chain um, plays an integral part of understanding like what their core capabilities are. And also it's going to require partnerships that are maybe outside of our current supply chain uh, as well to help us ultimately get to the end goal, which is supporting farmers adopting practices that have positive environmental impacts. And one of those partnerships that we recognized we needed really early on from an ADM perspective is what we call technical assistance support with farmers. Again, what we're great at is buying grain, setting markets, setting quality standards. Uh, But in our business today, we have some agronomic expertise, but not a lot of conservation agronomic expertise. We're building it. We will get there. But there are some companies out there, specifically in the U.S., who have been doing this work for decades, 10 to 20 years. And one of our earliest partners was Practical Farmers of Iowa, 
uh, in Iowa as we evolved that program, one of the first pilot programs in Des Moines that really built this community of farmers that shared best practices around adopting a cover crop, which is complex. It's not just there isn't a standard operating procedure for land that varies so much even within a state or within a county. Um, so what they did is share success stories, A, on their expertise on the agronomic side, but also brought farmers together on what equipment to use, what seeding rate to use, what termination rate that they ultimately needed. And what we used is that partnership to also expand our partnerships to several other regions. It includes American Farmland Trust in the state of uh, Illinois, Ducks Unlimited in the state of Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Flint River Soil and Water Conservation Districts that covers South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, uh, Kansas Association of Conservation Districts in the state of Kansas, Minnesota Soil Health Coalition in the state of Minnesota, and then practical farmers of Iowa Health System from other states as well, like Nebraska and Missouri. Right? Um, that that partnership was really, really critical because it can't just be a check, uh, a direct incentive to farmers. There have to be resources of when a farmer has a question about um, having a successful adoption of one of these regenerative agriculture practices somewhere they can go. At the same time, from an ADM perspective, we've used that work that we've, that we've done with those technical assistance partners, and uh, we've cre- created a sustainability academy within our organization of training our originators, which we have 220 of them across the U.S., uh, around sustainability and regenerative agriculture from a high level, so then they're not like unarmed when they're having a conversation with farmers. Uh, and we've trained 770 employees within ADM, but a lot of that is uh, from the work that's been done with technical assistance partners. Another partnership that is really critical is the um, the technology piece of collecting uh, the field level information and ultimately reporting out the impacts that are associated with them. And the partnership that we have in the U.S. is with Farmers Business Network uh, that has really proven over the last two years that they can scale with us. Even though we're in what I call piloty project phase from 2012 to 2020, uh, we've decided to scale up our efforts not to work with, you know, a couple hundred farmers across the U.S., but get to 3,000 growers and over 2 million acres here this past year. So we needed a technology partner that could absorb, digest, and make it really easy for farmers to enter their information so we can ultimately uh, report on the, the impacts that are associated with these practices. Equally critical to the technical expertise and involvement of partners at the front end of the supply chain are those downstream, including CPG companies, according to Sheets, who called out early efforts by Unilever and PepsiCo as examples of how manufacturers and brands can become involved. I'm going to give uh, a couple different examples. Uh, the first one uh, is um, with Unilever, and it's been um, – uh, a long, successful journey of starting in 2012 in Des Moines, Iowa, where you had uh, an ADM representative and an Unilever representative that were pretty bold and wanting to do something different, uh, but completely understanding that different is going to come with pushback from farmers on trying to get information that we don't usually get. So making sure that we're incentivizing farmers to just do some baseline study of what practices they were doing at that time and making sure we're rewarding them for that information. And we did that from 2012 to 2017. And in that Des Moines project, we were able to gather 450,000 acres in one year of um, field-level practice decisions that were ultimately being made. And the one thing that we found at that time is that we had a pretty small subset of farmers that were adopting cover crops. Of the 450,000 acres, roughly 15,000 acres that were planting cover crops, so a really small percentage. 
And that being said, with those farmers that were adopting it, we've been partnering with Practical Farmers of Iowa as well. Their success stories are so passionate about um, the positive soil health impacts associated with that cover crop. So in the partnership, in a collaborative way, uh, we worked with Unilever of evolving the program to incentivize cover crops uh, in the future. And I come from a farming background. I grew up in West Central Illinois, row crop, livestock farming. And when it was first proposed to just evolve the program to just cover crops, I was a little skeptical, if I'm being completely honest, knowing that just a small subset of farmers uh, were adopting that practice. That being said, it's trial and error. That's the one advice that I will give to anybody that could be listening to the podcast is sometimes you'll work on something that maybe you don't think is going to be successful. You try it out. Maybe it is. Maybe you evolve and change um, what the focus area is in future years. But doing nothing isn't necessarily a strategy. Starting somewhere matters. And then you fast forward that program to last year and the total amount of acres in our supply chain that was planting cover crops uh, was over 150,000 cover crop acres at that time, over a three or four year window, which was really, really significant. Uh, similar story uh, with PepsiCo of standing up a, uh, a very similar program that was focused on the same practice uh, in 2017, 2018. But the one thing that I want to advise is it doesn't take 10 to 12 years of baselining or understanding. Uh, there's a lot that the whole industry has figured out. ADM has figured out. PepsiCo Unilever has figured out. Other CPGs, other grain handlers have figured out over the last 10 years that you can start now without you know, trying to figure out what that baseline information is. We have a really good feel of what practices exist today and where there can be success in future years. But the one thing that we figured out is every year that we would take a chance and just start a pilot project, we never looked back and regretted it. We always learned something from it. There was always an evolution piece of almost every single program. And we are so more, so much more educated on those small pilot projects that we were able to scale up our efforts across several different supply chains. And uh, that's, uh, that's just two examples of, of partnerships that we had with downstream customers where we were trying to figure it out together that ultimately was successful. And it's led to the scaled up efforts that all three of those companies have uh, now. As illustrated by these examples, Sheets says that a key component of scaling regenerative agriculture is financial support from CPG manufacturers and those downstream for farmers who cannot bear the brunt of this initial investment alone. Uh, For regenerative agriculture programs to be successful, uh, it can't just be a compliance exercise. It has got to be a business and a commercial uh, opportunity exercise across the whole supply chain. But it all starts with the farmer. Like ultimately, just like any other economic conversation, there has got to be supply before there is demand. And on the farmer side, there is so many things that go into their decision tree. If you think about how we've leaned on the farmer over the last 40 years, it was food security in the 80s. It was fuel security in the early 2000s. Now we're talking about carbon security and uh, soil erosion security that there's a reason why some of these practices aren't being adopted. It's not because they just don't want to. There is a real productivity or cost risk that's associated with these practices, especially in early days. Now, long-term wise, those uh, alleviate, I think, and our research will show that more clearly over the next five to 10 years. But in early days, there is absolutely a productivity and a cost risk that's associated with uh, with these practices that have to be offset through incentives and practice uh, practice payments per acre or 
some of our programs also pay premiums on bushels that are delivered. But at the end of the day, for this to be long-term successful, there has got to be a commercial and business opportunity throughout the whole supply chain. So in early years, it has to, the farmer has to have costs that are offset, productivity concerns that are offset through incentives. Uh, then it's the supply chain to work on the business opportunity over the next five to 10 years of differentiating products that come from regenerative agriculture versus not to the consumer. Looking forward, Sheets says more involvement by governments, banks, insurers, and retailers will be essential to continuing scaling regenerative agriculture and maximizing its impact. Um, if we just look at the trends over the last 18 to 24 months of um, interest within, uh, uh, within and outside of the supply chain, the funding opportunities and the demand opportunities have increased exponentially because the one thing to keep in mind is we have a lot of conversations about consumers, but there are a lot of other entities that are looking for uh, positive environmental out- outcomes that are, you know, governments, um, um, banks, um, crop insurance, ag retail. Ultimately, what all these practices do is lead to a more resilient crop over time as weather conditions change. Um, so that being said, there's a lot of work to be done. We are still in early days. Sustainability has been around forever, but this is one of those sub buckets that there has got to be, um, a more transparent, uh, story that's being told of what the positive environmental impacts are around these practices, which means there's got to be more research and there's got to be more scale because we're still at relatively small scale, uh, of having formal regenerative agriculture programs within the supply chain, um, that there's more work to ultimately done on the research side and on the storytelling side. Uh, but if you just look in the last 12 to 24 months, uh, the funding opportunities from in the U.S., the USDA or different bills that have been passed or downstream customers or markets that have been created in Europe around biofuels that keep sustainability or carbon intensity into mind, they have increased drastically. And I expect that to continue as we get closer to 2030, 2035, 2050. We just have to show on the front end the ability to scale uh, and um, the ability to feel confident on what the overall environmental impacts are, which takes research, takes uh, practice, takes pilot programs. Um, but I ultimately believe we can get there. For those who want to support regenerative agriculture and benefit from its long-term potential, Sheets shares three initial steps that they can take. It always starts out with um, doing uh, an analysis and trying to identify like what your footprint is, either carbon footprint, water footprint, uh, getting a little bit more familiar with what your supply chain looks like because different companies have very var- variations of transparency of what their supply chains ultimately look like. Um, but once they do that initial study, that inventory footprinting, um, the next step is to engage their suppliers. Uh, and trying to identify um, where their sourcing regions are and where their opportunity is. Because, again, it isn't a one-size-fits-all around every single commodity and every single region. They're all slightly different. Um, but uh, we're getting to a point now where there are people that are, an aid, from an ADM perspective, we are way more educated in uh, a wide range of what our agriculture ingredients are, not only where our sourcing area is, but what the opportunity for improvement ultimately is. So it starts with doing a little bit of inventory accounting, then it's engagement with suppliers of trying to do an analysis of what your sourcing region looks like. Once you identify your 
Thoracene region, try to identify what the opportunity ultimately is around that commodity um, in the regenerative agriculture space. And, um, and then I think over the next several years is always keeping an eye on the innovative products that are uh, that are coming out uh, for further improvements, because I don't think this is a we find a silver bullet and we have to solve in five years. I think there's always going to be continuous improvement opportunities that allows for the agriculture supply chain to differentiate itself from other supply chains uh, just by looking at what the U.S. farmer has done over the last 40 years and what the agriculture industry has done as a whole over the last 40 years on being innovative um, and uh, aggressive when it comes to uh, products or programs that are focused on regenerative agriculture. Sheets also emphasized that the regenerative agriculture movement is growing and evolving quickly, which means if stakeholders tried to get involved even just three years ago, but were somehow stymied, they should try again and do so with an open mind towards partnerships. Uh, understand that today is completely different than what it was three years ago. Um, and uh, the way the space is today, it's a super collaborative effort as well of um all working in the same direction have might might have slightly different opinions of how to ultimately get there, um, but it will ultimately lead to even better relationships that you either have with your customer or your supplier than what you've had in the past. And that would just be my message to um, to um, retailers or CPGs out there that are thinking about um, uh, adding regenerative agriculture to their portfolio. For those of you who want to learn more about ADM's approach and the state of the regenerative agricultural industry, visit ADM.com and read the company's inaugural Regenerative Agriculture Report and its report, Farming for the Future, the State of Regenerative Agriculture Program Adoption. Links for both are included in the story that accompanies today's podcast. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope that you'll join me again for another installment. And to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive, profitable, and safe week.